0: Well, let me take a moment to echo what Kelly said earlier and wish uh, all of our mothers a happy Mother's Day. I'm grateful for mothers, grateful for my mom. Maybe, mom, maybe you'll listen to this later. I'm grateful for uh, for your unconditional love and for your godly influence in my life, and I'm grateful for that uh, that which I see happening in similar ways from the mothers in this congregation. And let me also say from all of the women in this congregation, quite frankly, whether you, uh, have a mo- whether you are a mother or are not a mother, as a woman you have incredible influence in the life of this church and in the surroundings around you. And I am proud of you for the impact you're making. And I praise God for you. And then I also recognize that a day like today is difficult for many because you are processing loss or you are processing grief Or you are processing a difficult or strained relationship either as a mother to a child or as a child to a mother. And I want you to know that that is not how God intended it to be. Uh, And that as a church we mourn and grieve with you and pray for God's peace to rest deeply on you. And for Jesus uh, to lead you into places uh, of wholeness as well. So... Whatever season of life you find yourself in on a day like today, we are grateful that you're a part of this congregation, and I am privileged to live life and to serve Jesus alongside of you. This morning, we are jumping back into 2 Samuel. We are nearing the end of this book. For some of you, you're saying, oh, no. And then for the large majority of you, you're saying, finally. Right? I get it. It kind of gets laborious here towards the end. And quite frankly... We keep repeating the same storylines over and over again. Second Samuel, towards the end, gets a little bit like one of those bands, you know, when you hear them on the radio, you know who they are, but you're not sure which song it is because they all sound the same, right? You know some of those bands, right? Or maybe it's like the, the news. I used to watch the news when I was younger. and my, my parents watched the news religiously. And I stopped watching the news because the news felt like the same thing over and over and over again, right? All that's wrong in the world. And then you take it in for 30 minutes. They have one little nice story. Then you get to the weather. You hear about all the Philadelphia sports teams losing. And you go on to live your day in agony, right? That was my childhood anyway. And so 2 uh, Samuel feels a little bit like that. It seems like the same story is repeating itself over and over again. And especially as we get here in chapter 20. Because if you've been following along with us, either here or, or online in some way, you know that last week we talked about Uh, David returning to Jerusalem as king. After Absalom's rebellion is put down, David is received back as king. And there's a sense in which we feel like maybe this kingdom, which started with so much hope and had been so broken because of David's, quite frankly, uh, broken humanity, uh, maybe this thing could get put back on track finally. And what the storyteller wants us to know by putting chapter 20 right here is, any hope we have for that, either as a, uh, a resident of Israel in the days of David or as a reader of the story much later, any hope we have of things being put right under the leadership of David is gone because the storyline is going to play itself over and over again. So Second Samuel chapter 20, if you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn there. Uh, if you don't have one, feel free to just listen along as I read the first couple of verses. It says, now a troublemaker named Sheba, a troublemaker is a pretty good translation. The the original Hebrew is a son of Belial, basically means like a not good guy, right? A a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. Uh, This talks about this area of Gilgal right across the Jordan River where David is being received by all of Israel. This guy Sheba is there, and this is what he shouts with a trumpet. He says, we have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his own tent in Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took ten concubines. He uh, He had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but had no sexual relations with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Strange little pericope here that relates back to when Absalom took over the palace, you remember. And he took the concubines as his own and in that way corrupted that area. Verse 4, then the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. You remember Amasa is who David has now appointed to be the leader of all the armies in Israel. He had given that job that used to belong to Joab. He had now given it to Amasa, probably for two reasons. First is that he probably doesn't trust Joab anymore. Remember, Joab's the one who killed Absalom, even though David told him not to. And Joab really has a history of doing what he thinks is best, uh, whether or not David agrees with him, and probably... The death of Absalom for David was a bit of a last straw for Joab. And secondarily, David also appointed Amasa king, or, uh, leader of the whole army because he was trying to reunite the people. And strangely enough, Amasa was the leader of the whole army under Absalom. Right? And so David thought, well, if I give this guy this job, maybe we can reconcile. And what we'll find out in the story is He shouldn't have given the job to either of these guys. So the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah, we are going to go after Sheba. But Amasa went to, when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. So David said to Abishai, now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. So take your master's men, pursue him. He's saying, well, we can't wait for him to get the army together. Take my closest royal guard and troops and go after him. He'll find fortified cities and escape from us if we don't. Verse 7, so Joab's men and the Karathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. While they're at the the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. And Joab was wearing his military tunic. And strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. And he stepped forward, and it dropped out of his sheath. Uh, The the storyteller, as we keep reading here, is is writing that sarcastically. He stepped forward and dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, hey, how are you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand. And Joab plunged it into his belly and... His intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Happy Mother's Day. Then Joab and, <laughs> and Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's men stood beside Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road. And the man saw that all the troops came to a halt there. When he realized that everyone who came up to Amasa stopped, he dragged him from the road into a field and threw a garment over him. And after Amasa had been removed from the road, everyone went on with Joab to pursue Sheba of Bichri. We'll stop reading there. Let me just summarize the rest of the story. They find him holed up in a city. And there is a woman in the city who negotiates so that the army of David won't come and destroy the whole city. They give up Sheba. Sheba's head is cut off, and the rebellion is ended, and Joab is allowed to maintain leadership over David's army. Now, I suggested to you that this is a repeating story, right? Because we just dealt with the rebellion, and now here we are again dealing with the rebellion. And the truth is that It seems like there's one obvious rebellion, but I would suggest to you this morning there are actually two rebellions going on in 2 Samuel chapter 20. One that's pretty overt, led by a guy named Sheba, and one that's a little more subtle, led by a guy named Joab. And with with the hope that you'll stick with me through the whole thing, let me give you the end here at the beginning. And that is that I believe we will associate ourselves with one or the other. That we tend to be Sheba type people or we tend to be Joab type people. That in our relationship to Jesus as our king, we tend to either be people who overtly push away his rule or people who much more subtly push away his rule. So let's talk about this a minute. The story of David is, is pointing us here in chapter 20 to realize that, that things are just as awful in the kingdom of Israel as they were before the rebellion of Absalom. And so even with David's great return and seemingly great victory, Israel is in tatters and, and the rebellion and the rebelliousness of the people are at paramount highs in many ways if you're familiar with Old Testament history. What's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 20 looks an awful lot like the book of Judges, where it says that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They come back to God, and then they leave God. They do what's right in their own eyes. And there's this similar sense that the storyteller who thinks, who assumes that we've been reading the whole story of God up to this point, our minds are meant to go back to this this reality that, that ultimately led the people to want a king and to realize that even with this great king David human, humans left to their own devices always end up in the same kind of situation so Sheba leads a, a very external very overt rebellion against David he says we have no share in David what is he saying it was 12 tribes of Israel David comes from one of them so why should the rest of the tribes of Israel follow this guy after all Can't we do our own thing? And so he says, hey, if you're not part of his tribe, let him do his own thing. What's good for him is good for him, but it's not necessarily good for everyone. And we're going to go back to our own tents and we're going to do our own thing. And in so doing moves against God's desire that all of Israel would be God's collective people. God never called them to be separate tribes. He called them to be one people. And Sheba moving against this and moving against David's rule in this way. And even though at the end Sheba's rebellion leads to his ultimate demise, we are left as readers to come to the simple conclusion that under David's leadership, as a nation under King David, there is really no hope for unity moving forward. And then we get to Joab, right? We mentioned earlier that Joab's rebellion is much more subtle. Joab is no longer the commander of the army for the reasons that I suggested to you earlier. And Joab is on the face extraordinarily loyal to David. In fact, I read many commentators over the past several weeks who would say that that Joab is fiercely loyal to David. And I just don't see it that way. I see Joab as very loyal to David, but actually fiercely loyal to himself. You see that? That is on the external, it's all about King David, but the thing that really drives him internally is self-preservation. Doing it my way, being significant, accepted, secure, how, whatever language you want to use it, so that when push comes to shove, when the king gives Joab a difficult command, Joab is going with self not with king. Do you see that? So if if Sheba would basically use the phrase, uh, David is not my king, Joab, if we would hook him up to a lie detector test, would probably pass when he said, David is my king. But he would probably fail if he tried to say that David is my lord. Right? Yeah, he's my king and I'm I'm underneath him and I'm going to do whatever he needs so long as it's good for me. But when the going gets tough or when the situations get a little murky, I'm going to do what I need to be significant in this place. And so we have Joab dealing severely with Abner earlier in the story when David asked him not to. Dealing severely with Absalom when David asked him not to. And constantly being this person who is... Uh, Through his actions, stirring up more disobedience amongst the people because of his own personal disobedience. And so what should we surmise is going to happen when David appoints Amasa as the general of the army? Is Joab going to take this in stride? Publicly, yes. Privately, no. Right? Publicly, he puts on his warrior garments and he's ready to serve privately. He's looking for any opportunity to get this guy out of his way so he can re-grab his position of significance. And so the author tells us that his dagger fell out of his belt, of course, on purpose, right? And as he's going up to kiss the new general to, to publicly announce his support to him, He's picking up the dagger with his left hand, which a warrior in those days would never carry his, 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 his weapon in. We know that from earlier in the book of Judges. Remember the story of Eglon and Ehud, right? And as he kisses him, we get the significance of Jesus being kissed by Judas. He drives his dagger into his stomach and cuts him so deeply and profoundly that he just needs to stab him no more, and Amasa is gone. This is the kind of person that Joab is. Everything looks great on the exterior in terms of his loyalty to his king. And yet on the interior, his motives are completely captivated by and driven through his own selfish ambition. And David, who is a weakened and lame duck king, Even though he knows about this, even though he knows he killed Absalom, even though he knows he killed Abner, and all of these things simply allows him to serve as commander moving forward. Why? Because David is no longer a righteous king. No longer a king leading with authority or standing, nor is he a king leading with moral authority or standing. And so in both of these rebellions, we're looking at a nation who's not willing to come together under its king and a king who's not willing to deal with those who are are disobedient and allowing these things to continue to happen time and time again. And we are realizing as storytellers or as, as citizens of Israel in that day that if we are to look and to hope for the kingdom that God promised, we now must look beyond David you see it? The reason 2 Samuel chapter 20 exists right after chapter 19 is so that the readers are forced to understand our hope now rests beyond David. That even the great return of David after victory over the rebellion is not enough to deal with the mess of the world. And so, in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel what the storyteller is doing is setting us up to receive a son of David. And in 1 Kings, we'll realize that that son is a guy named Solomon. And Solomon comes to power. The stage is set for him to be the king that God intended to be, to be the son of David, the one who God had promised would build God a house a king who would lead with righteousness and with integrity. Who would lead with justice. Who would gather God's people as one united people. The people of God. Not separate tribes doing their own thing and serving their own God in their own ways. And so we see in 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon beginning to do things that his father refused to do. He takes a guy named Shimei. We've talked about Shimei far too much over the last couple of weeks, right? Shimei is not a good guy. He's cursing David constantly. He's throwing rocks at people. He, he wants nothing to do with David's, David's rule. And David has forgiven him on, the ret- on his return. Uh, what I would suggest to you is sort of a last hope, last chance for Shimei back into the kingdom. And Based on David's dying words to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 2, we realize that Shimei has not lived up to his end of the bargain. And David says to Solomon, you're going to need to deal with him. In other words, I need you to do what I couldn't do. There's this strange transfer of power from a king who is weakened, who, who everyone thought was going to be something and ended up not being that, to to his son, to the coming king. And of course, Solomon deals with Shimei. And also in 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon deals with Joab. He pursues Joab till he finds him. and, And finally, justice is brought on Joab. Why? Because David also says to Solomon, I need you to do to Joab what I could never do to him. And so we see in the beginnings of this rule of Solomon a king whom God promised He would have build a house for God. And a king who is who's going to hopefully restore this rule of David, this royal rule of the house of David over Israel with integrity and with justice, gathering the people together, being a person who a king who the people would follow, and being a righteous king who would execute justice, and in it we see what I would suggest to you is the true heroic of the story, and that is God himself, a God of grace, a God who is unlike anything we can imagine, a God who, after, giving, after choosing and giving David everything he needed to rule in the way he asked him, and then watching the mess unfold of a fallen king who made awful choices in his life. Rather than pulling back and reneging on a promise he had made, actually pushing in harder. And in First Kings, we see God allows Solomon to build a temple. And God comes and dwells with his people. Think about this for a minute. God stepping in even farther in proximity and closeness to a people who are completely off the rails. This is our God, a God of grace whose actions toward us are not dependent upon our actions toward him. And in Solomon we see hope. Now you should read 1st and 2nd Kings, but in case you don't want to, let me let you in on a little secret. Solomon, just like his dad, turns out to be everything we hoped he wouldn't be. Right? and we find in Solomon is that he is not the antidote to the sickness of David. He's actually just as afflicted as his dad was. A storyteller will tell us that Solomon accumulates multiple wives once again. All kinds of horses, all kinds of power, multiple wives to people outside the realm of Israel... It leads to all kinds of idolatry within the nation. This king who was supposed to be righteous is now, is now slipping in all of these ways and it ultimately leads to the king who, who assumes power after Solomon leads to a final and permanent division of the kingdom of God. Do you see it? The two things in Second Samuel chapter 20 that David couldn't do that we hope that his son Solomon could do now come even stronger into their fullness. And so, I would suggest to you that the storyteller is actually asking us to think even bigger than Solomon. When the storyteller writes 2 Samuel chapter 20, as part of the grand story that he's telling, he wants us to know that we cannot look to David for future hope. But he also wants us to know that we cannot look to Solomon for future hope. That we have to look to another son of David. To a son of David who is not afflicted with the problem of sin in our world. A son of David who will lead with integrity. And who is righteous. And who will pursue justice in our world. You know, isn't it interesting? Political seasons are upon us, right? And there's like 37 trillion people running for president. Good luck. I I don't know what to tell you, you know. And all of them are telling you, it will be better under me. The story of the Bible is to remind you, it will not be better under them, okay? Okay? We always look to the next person because what we're experiencing now, however you perceive it, could be better, right? We'll say it in that way, right? And so we look to the next person, then we get to the next person, and what do we end up doing? Well, the next person is going to make this better, right? And then we look to the next person, and then we look back with with glory over, whoa, it would have been so great if Lincoln was our president or whatever, and we fail to realize that there was all kinds of problems there too, right? All of humanity is stricken with this problem of pride and of self-pursuit and of a lack of righteousness, and a lack of an integrity, an inability to be God's representative to the world, and so into the mess, what should we expect of a God who's known by grace? A God who steps even closer to his people, and breaks out of the temple that Solomon built for him. We call it the incarnation. Jesus walks in flesh on the earth with us. All barriers between God and man broken even before a cross. Why? Because the answer to the corruption of our world and the corruption of our soul is the proximity of God to the problem. And every time the situation gets worse, God comes closer. Why? Because his end goal is not judgment. It is restoration of all things. And one of the things that is difficult for us as we continue to live in a corrupt world, right? And as people who have corrupt souls, is why do we have to wait? Why can't it just be better now? And part of the answer in that reality is this sense in which the patience of God is his heart longing for more people to be part of the reconciled world. That the end wouldn't have to be judgment, a severed head of Sheba, or a sacrificed Joab, but truly restored and reconciled people. So as you wait in a corrupt and broken world, know that God's heart longs for the reconciliation of all things. That what you're experiencing is not what he wants, but part of your your endurance to it is the same way in which Jesus endures the cross so that God can tarry a little bit longer to restore all things to Himself. See, Jesus is the true Son of David. He's the one who our eyes are supposed to go to when we read Second Samuel chapter 20. He's the only one who can lead with integrity, who has a righteous standing, He's the only one who can gather the people of God to himself in one place. That's why we read in Revelation chapter 7, that the end of all things is a picture of people from every tribe and every tongue gathered around the Lamb, praising and worshiping him. This is what the people of God have always supposed to look like, only possible through Jesus. Why? Why? Because Jesus enters the world in righteousness, knowing that judgment must come in order for all things to be reconciled. That we cannot just wish it away, or hope it gets better on its own, or or dream that Joab is a different kind of person than he really is, Or that Shiba will get it figured out behind the walls over there. No no Judgment and justice have to come. So how do we reconcile that with a God who's who's known by love? We have a God who has a standing and willingly sets it aside. Lays down his self-pride, self-focus, pride, whatever you want to call it and receives the judgment and the justice on himself. In so doing, opens up the promises of the kingdom of God to anyone who would be joined to him. This is the king that we need in 2 Samuel 20. And he's not there. And yet... He is king of all the earth. The glory of God has broken out of the temple it has moved to the ends of the earth in the person of Jesus and the church that is joined to him. This morning, I need for you to know in the chaos and the corruption of our world and in the midst of the deep brokenness of your lives, That there is a king who stands close. Who leads with integrity and stands in righteousness. Who was not afflicted with the disease of sin. And yet willingly took it on in order to cure the world. This is God's King. This is who we long for. This is who we were created to serve. He is the only one that can gather us together and that can lead us in righteousness. So, if you are Sheba and you're saying, You Jesus people, good for you, I'm going to go do my own thing over here. I've got no stake in Jesus. I plead with you to take a second look. He is not a king like any king you have ever known. He's a king who lays down his life for his people, who does not rule over them with an iron fist, but loves them with a tender heart. And for the majority of us who are Joab-type people, It is time that our lives match the king who we claim to serve. We cannot be people who are known by our external affirmation of King Jesus and yet live a life like Joab. I get it. You're not spilling people's intestines in the middle of a road on the way to battle, right? I hope, right? This is not happening, (laughs) I would say let's talk if you have, but don't, you need to talk to someone else, not me. I don't know if you can do with that, right? But you get it, right? When the going gets tough, when there are hard things asked of us by our king, sometimes to sit down for a minute and let me handle this, sometimes to step into a hard place, sometimes to be more loving than aggressive, sometimes to be more aggressive than loving, That's backwards, right? Because sometimes being aggressive is bold love and necessary. If Jesus really is king, then the only answer is yes. I will. And it is more than appropriate to say, I don't know how. I need your help. Those are questions that King Jesus loves to answer In profound ways. So as you go from this place. Many of you are willing to say. Jesus is king. And I praise God for that. If you're not. Would you give him a second look? But let me ask you a really hard question church. Hooked up to the lie detector test. Are you willing to say. That king Jesus is Lord. If not, then you don't know him all that well. right? Listen, we are not going to be perfect in this. This is not a guilt trip type sermon. This is a, this is a, a sermon to a talk to my heart and to your heart that urges us to be the kind of people Jesus calls us to be, not because we need to earn something from him, not because he's going to kill us if we don't, but because he deserves it. He's the king that we need, the king that we long for, the one who is setting all things right in our world. Our hearts should be compelled to obedience because of that. And when our flesh wants to go its own way, stop and name Jesus not just as king but also as Lord. Can I pray with you?